last summer, I, I was struggling with doubt, questioning my faith, and uh, I have a good like apologetics background, and so I was doing apologetics with myself, where at, at simultaneously I'm defending the faith in my mind, but then I'm also defending my doubts, where even the apologetic that has always worked for me helped me in the past, which is this, it's the question, Ryan, is, is there a better story out there that makes sense of this world than Christianity. And up to that point, I'd always be like, yes, thank you, Lord. Like, I, I, can, I can say that, and then, yes, I can connect with that, and then, no, there's not a better story that makes sense of the world than Christianity. And last year, I, I'm, I'm waking up in the middle of the night, I'm doing these apologetics with myself in my mind, I can't sleep, and then I found myself, like, undercutting my own apologetics. Like, saying, yeah, there may be another story out there that's better than Christianity. And so I'm attempting to believe this. I, I, I begin to think, I know, I know you. I know many of you really well. And I know you, you've had similar struggles with questions, doubts, tempted to give up and walk away from Jesus. And so we, we come to 1 John today because of this. A, a letter written by John, the beloved friend of Jesus, the same author as the Gospel of John, who's late in life, maybe in his 70s, maybe in his 80s, and he's writing to people like us, Christians, people who've been born again, born again who have new hearts, who've been forgiven, who've been adopted by the Father, who believe the good news of Jesus' uh, uh, life and death and resurrection. Like, he's writing to people like us, but but even though that we're Christians, we're struggling with what we're hearing or tempted to give up and walk away or wrestling with those doubts and questions. Maybe hearing from false teachers, that's what they were. Tempted to drift away. And so this is what's happening with this letter to try to give you some preface to what's happening. But we're, we're going to just kind of nuance it as we go and kind of uh, unpack and peel back the layers as we go. So let's just jump in 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2. I want you to see it with me. And so if you have your Bible, I'd love for you to open up. If you, have, if you want to grab a pew Bible, open up. I want you to see what the Spirit is telling you this morning, speaking to us this morning. 1 John 1, 1. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have observed and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was revealed and we have seen it and we testify and declare to you the eternal life that was with the Father and was revealed to us. John begins with saying, I'm an eyewitness to the word of life. I'm a firsthand eyewitness of eternal life. And if you're familiar with John 1, the Gospel of John, then you know that this, this feels a little vague. You're like, what are you speaking or who are you speaking about? Clearly from John 1, he's speaking about Jesus that in the beginning was the Word. And he's with God, but he's also God. Before creation. Jesus was with the Father, but 2,000 years ago, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
That's what John tells us in chapter one of his gospel. He goes on to say, we observed Jesus' glory, the glory as the one and only son from the father, full of grace and truth. So, so this isn't secondhand gossip. This isn't that game telephone where it's passed down and by the end you're like, what did you, what, what did you say? Like that's not even close to how the first person said. This isn't, this is secondhand, this is thirdhand. This isn't passed down. This is firsthand eyewitness account. He saw, he touched, he observed the eternal life in the flesh. He walked with and ate with the eternal son. A few years after walking and eating with the eternal son, John is handcuffed, arrested, and stands trial before the religious leaders of the day because God had healed a, a crippled man through him and Peter. <laughs> and they're like just giving Peter and John the business. Like, no, no, who are you? You can't talk like this. You can't do this. And this is what Peter and John say in Acts 4. Acts 4, 19, they answer the religious leaders and say, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. Pause. Uh, to me, quite sarcastic. That's how I read that, right? Because like putting like, you know, should we listen to you or should we listen to God? You decide. Like, what? There's, there's, no, there's no question there, right? Like, like, that's the trump card. Anyone, like, says that to you, you're like, okay, I guess listen to God, you know? It's like, no, no, no. You decide. Should we listen to you? Should, should we stop doing what you're telling us that we should stop doing? He says, no, no. For we are unable. It's like, if it's right or wrong, you can decide if it's right or wrong. This is what we're going to do. We are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. We can't stop. We won't stop. We're eyewitnesses. We've touched and seen and heard and observed the eternal uh, uh, life in the flesh. We won't stop. And then after threatening Peter and John further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For this sign of healing had been, been performed on a man over 40 years old. Saying we can't stop talking about what we saw and heard. We witnessed this, witnessed it, and it's the most amazing event in human history. We observed the God-man loving, healing, preaching the good news of the kingdom. Peter, in, in, in saying that with John in Acts 4, he also writes it in 2 Peter. This is, what he, this is how he puts it which I think is quite helpful. For we did not follow cleverly contrived myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Instead, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Do you, do you hear what he's saying there? That the same things that people say about Christianity, about Christ today are the same things they said 2,000 years ago. This is folklore, this is legend, this is myth. He's saying, no, 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 we didn't, conjure up any things. We didn't sit down and write a folklore tale about Jesus. We were eyewitness accounts of Jesus. 
eyewitnesses of his majesty. Verse 17, for he received honor and glory from the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory, saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Eyewitness account, verse 18. We ourselves heard this voice when it came from heaven while we were with him on the holy mountain. We heard the Father say from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom well pleased. That's what we've experienced. That's who we're talking about. Jesus, in Luke 24, he comes to him after his resurrection. He says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet that it is I myself Touch me and see, because a ghost doesn't have flesh and bones as you see, as you can see I have. In John 20, after his resurrection as well, he said to Thomas, put your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach out your hand and put it to my side. Like, see the scars. See the scars. Feel them. Don't be faithless, but believe. And after Thomas sees, hears, observes, and touches the resurrected king, what does he say? My Lord and my God. This isn't clever myth. This isn't folklore. This is an eyewitness account of what has happened in this world. Now, if you're, if you're not a Christian and you're seeking to maybe consider who God is or check out Christianity, consider if it's is Christianity true? Is Christianity good? I commend you, meaning I'm glad you're here, that you would seek that out, that you'd want to move towards. But in your life, the reality is you have a lot of competing voices trying to vie for your attention, like incessantly, trying to get you to listen. Like yesterday, I'm coaching my son's baseball team. It's his first game he, uh, uh, of the season. He broke his finger this past week. He's got a splint on it. Uh, we play a double header, and so uh, he's got the splint on. He can't wear a glove because of it. And uh, we put him in the outfield in the first game because, like, we'll just be safe. If, if the ball gets past everyone, you can grab it and you can throw it in. Second game, we're like, we need some help. We lost the first game. Hey, buddy, can you go be in the pitcher position and can you be there? And uh, uh, I'm telling him, all right, bases are loaded, buddy. I'm on the sideline. He's right there. We got other coaches, my assistant coaches in the, in the outfield helping. But I'm right there. And I tell him, hey, there's basically there's a runner there. You can, you can get the ball and go and just, just touch home plate and we'll get an out. So the ball hits to him, he picks it up, he's a wonderful baseball player, but everyone starts yelling at him, and he doesn't know what to do. He's like, huh, 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 because everyone's like, go to third, throw to first, do this. And I'm like, buddy, go home, go home and touch the plate, go home and touch, and, and he's just so confused. And, and I talk to him after, or I, I go to him afterwards, and I feel like he's visibly upset, and I'm just talking to him, what's going on, he just, he felt scared and overwhelmed because there's so many people yelling at him. And I said, hey, buddy, I'm sorry, because I, I it took a while to get that out of him. But I said, hey, I'm sorry. Just listen to my voice. Okay, the ball comes to you again. Just listen to me. Just listen to what, and that, that's what's happening. Here, you've got a lot of competing voices yelling at you. Throw it to third. Run this way. Do this. Think this. Follow this. Celebrities. Politicians. Philosophers, 
so many voices trying to persuade you into their lifestyle or their way of thinking. And I say that to say, if you're not a Christian, could you be willing to listen to someone who reports to be an eyewitness account of the resurrected king? I mean, at the least, I just want you to be willing to listen to what an eyewitness of Jesus says about Jesus. And Peter and John are clearly articulating, this is no myth, folklore, legend. This is reality. This is what they genuinely experience. And this eyewitness account is amazing. And as we continue in the letter, we begin to understand what is going on with the people that he's writing to and why he starts this way. Now, if, if we just stopped there in the first five verses, you might consider, like as we read it this morning, as Mandy read it for us, you might think uh, he's writing to non-Christians because he talks about this fellowship and they're not in fellowship with God. But as you read the whole letter, they're not non-Christians who are outside the fellowship of God. They are Christians who are in fellowship with God, but their fellowship with John and potentially God is under threat. It's under threat. It seems some people had left John's church, had start teaching a different gospel, different things about Jesus, uh, different things about sin, right? That, that maybe they're sinless or that sinlessness in life is possible, Possibly stating you don't need Christ to have fellowship with the Father. And so these false teachers are guiding people away from the gospel. And John states, immediately up front, first, first, not a hi, how are you doing, grace and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, I'm an eyewitness. We are eyewitnesses and friends of Jesus. Are those false teachers? Were they eyewitnesses of Jesus? Are they friends with Jesus? Like, we know Jesus. We touched him. We observed him. Did they? And he keeps going in verse 3. What we have seen and heard, we also declare to you that you may also have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Verse 5, this is the message we have heard from the eternal life, from Jesus, and declare to you, God is light. Mandy, what was it? Dios es luz? I lost it. That was beautiful. Was that right? It's just beautiful to hear it. God is light, and there's absolutely no darkness in him. So what he's saying is don't drift away from the gospel. Don't be swayed from holding fast to Jesus, we, he said, we invite you into fellowship, the fellowship that we have with the Father and the Son, and thereby invite you into fellowship with us. But let's just slow down and ponder what, what John is saying. He's saying fellowship. <laughs> and I know some of you, and like when I say that word, when you read that word, you think about fellowship, banquets, fellowship dinners, fellowship lunches, fellowship socials, right? Like, like 1950s have a social ice cream, an ice cream social. Is that right? Like that's what some of us think of, right? 
That's not what he's saying. Let me, let me filter what you're trying to import into this word and just get it out. What he's saying is that you're invited into this fellowship. Fellowship is intimately sharing your life. You're invited to intimately share your life with the Father and the Son. You are invited to intimately share your life with God's family, with his children. You're invited into communion, to closeness, to nearness, to the Father, Son, and life, to, to be invited into his life, into deep friendship with God. Near the end of his ministry, in John 15 or 14, John uh, Jesus tells his disciples, I no longer call you servants. I'm not going to call you servants anymore. I, <laughs> the eternal son, I'm going to call you friends. And then he gives his reasoning. He says, because I've not withheld anything that the father has told me. And you, you, you begin to see this reality of friendship that at least one part of being friends is that you reveal secrets to one another. And Jesus is saying, I've revealed my secrets to you. Everything that the Father has told me, I've told you. So you're not servants anymore. I'm not going to call you that. We're friends. That's friendship. Fellowship, I, I, I have to try to define it seven different ways because one word doesn't equate to it perfectly. Fellowship is this intimately sharing of life, this communion, this deep friendship. But this isn't a new friendship. This isn't a Kickstarter. This isn't trying to get into this fellowship. This friendship is rooted in the Trinity, which is perfect friendship. The Father and Son fellowship. Not in a hall, but they fellowship. They are in fellowship. John is revealing, which he does so eloquently in John chapter 1 and 1 John 1, these glorious truths about who our God is so quickly. And what he's saying is, before creation, God didn't exist as a solitary individual in solitary confinement. God wasn't a lonely, isolated being. No, God has always been the Trinity, the Father, Son, and Spirit. God has always existed as divine community, perfect fellowship intimately sharing their lives, joyfully united and working together to the same purposes. The Trinity is perfect, loving community. And when you dive into who God reveals himself as in the scriptures, you see that from all eternity in this perfect fellowship, this perfect community, that God has existed in love. Near the end of of Jesus' prayer in John 17, Jesus states, Father, you are. Love me before the foundation of the world. (laughs) The Father has always, for all eternity, joyfully lavished the Son with his love. Love is his identity. It's that which defines his character. God is not only loving. He is love. Before he created and powerfully uh, uh, displayed his wisdom and power in creation, he loved. 
His fundamental impulse is love. Now, if he was a solitary being, then his fundamental impulse would be power. Like we would see him in Genesis 1 break on the scene, uh, 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 powerfully create, and we would say, God is power. But before he's creator, he's a father. Before he's creator, he's a lover. He is love. Creation actually only happens because of it's his overflow of love for his son that he wants more creatures to experience this fellowship, this deep friendship. The father has always showered his love on the son in the spirit. Fellowship. So before creation, the Trinity has existed in loving, joyful fellowship. So to be enveloped into this community, like to be pulled into this community, means for us intimacy and love and joy. You see that in verse it could be translated we are writing these things to make your joy complete but even if it's our joy complete John is stating his joy is complete when the people he's talking to join in his joy in God meaning I'm just passing forward some C.S. Lewis, but he says that, that your joy in an object is not complete until you shared in that joy with another person. And that's what John is doing. My joy will be complete when you are enjoying God in this loving, intimate fellowship and experiencing that fullness with Father, Son, and Spirit like we are. I want that for you. And so, that's John's language. Can I just use my language to you? I want you so badly to be happy in Jesus. That's what I want for you. I want you so badly to be happy in Jesus. You're invited into fellowship with God and his people. And I keep saying invited. Invited is not a strong enough word because God's love is passionate and overflowing. So one of the best books I read on my sabbatical was Lover of My Soul by Alan Wright, and he puts it this way. Jesus was a fisherman casting lures, not a hunter spearing his prey. He was a shepherd leading his sheep, not a thief snatching lambs. And so he came not to scare us into submission. Family, if you grew up in a church like that, that tried to scare you into submission to God, I'm sorry, but that's not who God is. This is the reality. He came not to scare us into submission, but to woo us into fellowship. <laughs> You're more than invited. Jesus is wooing you into fellowship with God. He's not an aloof lover. He's pursuing you to experience this deep 
friendship. I want you so badly to be happy in the Trinity, to revel in fellowship with Father, Son, and Spirit. But, but, but your fellowship may be under threat just like John's audience. Like you're a Christian, but something is threatening your precious friendship with God. Maybe you're, you're listening to a, a podcast or some of your friends and they're trying to woo you away from God. Maybe you're tempted to walk away from the faith. Like our culture has changed so rapidly over the past few years and, and maybe you just feel disoriented, trying to make sense of what is life. Like there's been a tidal wave of change uh, in how people think in regards to gender and sex and race and politics and just kind of left you thinking like, I, I don't know where I'm at or what I'm holding on to. I'm so confused. You just feel bombarded by that tidal wave. And it's such a strong current. It's like those strong currents at the ocean that you warn your kids about. No, you're not going to swim right there. Because that current will pull you into the ocean. When my wife and I went to uh, uh, Cosmo for our honeymoon, we rented, it's our favorite day of, of the trip, we rented a, uh, oh, it's been so long ago. And we rented a scooter. Yeah, it was like 2006. We rented a scooter, and we just rode around the island. And we went to the back of the island, which is facing, uh, what, the Pacific? Um, I don't know. I'm off. I'm sorry. Let me get to the point. <laughs> I'm getting really caught up on the details, right? <laughs> Do you know that I didn't write this down? You know I didn't think about this? Uh, Rusty, Laura, we'll, we'll get back to it. Um, we rented a scooter. We drove around the backside of the uh, island, and there's like so many signs that say, don't swim, don't swim, terrible current. This is an ocean. This isn't the gulf. You're going to get pulled away. And just like that, we have this tidal wave of change that's happening, and it just feels, feels very easy that you can get swept up in it and just be taking someone somewhere else that you didn't plan on going at all. Maybe that's you. Or maybe you're in the midst of suffering, and you're doubting God's goodness. I mean, probably all of us have felt some of this recently. But last year when I was doubting and struggling, wrestling with those things, I had a recurring dream. And this recurring dream was for a couple of weeks, every night. And the dream was that my wife was committing adultery on me. And it felt so real and so palpable that I'd wake up like tearful, emotional, hurt, thinking, I can't believe she did this to me. She betrayed me. And it was like every night for a couple of weeks. And, and. I would talk to her in the morning. I'm like, are we okay? Are you good? This really happened? Because I woke up and I feel like I couldn't breathe until I could comprehend that this was just a dream. It wasn't reality. There was one time I woke up at like three in the morning with that dream and it felt so real that I almost woke her up to be like, what, what did you just do? Because I was like so convinced, like this is what's happening. And, and after a few weeks that uh, the dream woke me up and God gently revealed to me of what was happening. And he 
I woke up in the middle of the night and he just gently said, this is what you're doing to me. And uh, I felt that, felt the reality of, oh, I'm the one committing adultery. Oh, I'm the one betraying you. Oh, I'm the one walking away. I'm the one that's enticed towards other lovers. Uh, I'm the one that, is, uh, that I'm committing adultery on you. You gave me this dream to reveal this to me. And I, I, uh, I, I went to sleep just amazed by the love of God. And then I, I woke up the next day and, and me and Kaylin talked about it and she was so excited for it because she felt like pretty, pretty quickly before that that God had revealed that to her and, and so she had been praying for me and, and so we're just rejoicing in this. And so what I'm saying is how intimate is this fellowship? It's so intimate that God may give you dreams to woo you back to himself. That his love for you means he desires to commune with you, to be your friend, for you to be his friend. And so around here, we say that we want to make disciples who delight in the Trinity and cultivate deep friendships and boldly evangelize. And what I'm kind of saying this morning is I want you to cultivate deep friendship with one another. Yes, please. It takes time. Some of us don't know how to be friends. It, it takes a lot of work. It's sanctifying. But, but more than that, I want you to cultivate deep friendship with a father, son, and spirit. That's what I want. To feel affections of the father for you. To talk to the man of sorrows, Jesus, in the midst of your suffering. To lament, to grieve to him. To listen to the spirit through reading the scriptures and, and being quiet in your prayer to hear him. My, my joy will be complete when you're walking in this fellowship. That's how I feel like John. Like I feel radiantly joyful right now. But I know there's another level. If God is infinite, I know there's another level to my joy. And I think a part of that is you. I mean, I, I want you so badly to, happy, to, to be happy in the Trinity. For your sake, because I've tasted and seen this, that I, I want more for you, and I want more for myself. I want to know Jesus more. I want to experience the power of his resurrection, as Paul says, and the fellowship of his sufferings. I want you to experience the fellowship of the Godhead, the perfect God. And we end with John stating this, God is light. And there is absolutely no darkness in him. Now, John uses light in a few different ways in his writings. So we have to pick up some context clues of what's happening. But from the rest of the letter, we can understand that he's saying in this moment that God is the source of life, one, and God is morally perfect, two. That's what he said. God is light and there's absolutely no darkness in him. Meaning he's the source of life. He's the source of eternal life. Life emanates from him. There's no death or no absence of life in him. Radiant, buoyant life. He has created us and saved us. That's what we're talking about. But then also that he's morally, ethically perfect. 
And so when he says there's no darkness in God, that means there's no blemish, there's no stain, there's no mark uh, or sin on the character of God. There's no devious motives. There's no impure motives. God is not a user, but a lover. John's world was full of idols and gods like ours is. But for them, many of their idols and gods were just as corrupt and evil as the men and women who worshiped those idols. Meaning the gods could be like vengeful, angry, lustful, greedy, right? And so John saying that God is morally perfect is a surprising message compared to all the other gods on the landscape. And John is a talented writer, and so in his gospel and also in this book, what he does is he saves his big point that elucidates the whole book at the very end. If you know the gospel of John, you know in John 20 he says, I wrote these things so that you would believe that Jesus is the Messiah and you would have eternal life in him. That's why, he's, that's why he did all that work. You know what he says at the end of 1 John? We are in the true one, that is, in his son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Last sentence, no by, none of like Paul's like long, hey, good to see you, say hi to this person. Last sentence, Paul didn't say that cavalier, I'm sorry. But last sentence of 1 John. Little children, guard yourselves from idols. To, to turn from the friendship of God, so I've got this fellowship, this intimacy, this love, this, this deep friendship with God, but to turn from that friendship is to turn to idols, is to turn into a friendship with a false God, a counterfeit God. But idols are users, not lovers. And so John, in such jealousy for his people in a good way, do you hear me? John cares for them so much, he's like, no, no, guard yourself from idol. I don't want you to go that way. I don't want you to drift away from the gospel. I don't want someone to snatch you up and pull your thinking and your lifestyle and your, uh, your discipleship away from the Father, Son, and Spirit. Like, guard yourselves. Guard yourselves. Because idols are so enticing and they promise to serve you, but always, in the end, they end up enslaving you. Guard yourselves. That's what idols do. But do you know what the Father does? He doesn't enslave you because there's no darkness in him. He doesn't beat you into submission because there's no darkness in him. He doesn't promise you things and then renege on it and say, ah, just kidding, maybe next time. There's no darkness in him. Do you know what the Father does? The Father frees you by his love for you. That's what he does. Jesus makes this palpably clear. He demonstrates God's goodness by his life and death and resurrection. And he demonstrates God's life by rising from the grave, demonstrating, displaying, showing off that death can't hold him. There's no darkness in him and there's no darkness that can hold him. And so he shows off the life of God. Meaning, 
not only did God create you, gave you physical life, he, if you're a Christian, has given you spiritual life, eternal life. He's the source of both. God is light. Now, I want you to feel this in, the bone, in your bones. I'm not saying much. I'm just saying the same thing over because I want you to feel this in your bones. Feel this with me. There will never be a scandal that comes out about God. I feel like I can breathe with that sentence. If you've been a Christian or in the Christian world a little bit, you feel a bit defeated by how many Christians and Christian leaders have shipwrecked their faith, like Paul says. But the beauty is, no matter who falls around you, the one you're heading towards you, the one you're heading towards will not. He won't fall. Like, there's never going to come out that you're like, oh, no, Ugh, we're embarrassed. This book that I quoted, this book that I gave to this other person, this podcast that I shared with this other person, this guy has failed, and now I can't, like, trust anything. That's never going to happen about God. There's no darkness in him. So good. There's no evil in him. So John's big point is this. Because we saw and told you about Jesus, then believe and have fellowship with the Trinity and his family. That's what I'm asking you. I'm going to pray for us, but can I ask you, if you're doubting God's goodness, like I was saying earlier, like I was, like I can in the future, if you're doubting God's goodness, or maybe you're tempted to walk away from the faith, or maybe you feel isolated and lonely, or you're really wrestling, you feel unsure if God loves you, or you're sick, or maybe you're wrestling with just some physical problem. During our response time, would you come forward and allow us to pray for you? I love praying that congregational prayer for all of us, but I, we, the pastors, other leaders, we love to pray for you wherever you're at, specifically for you, to lay our hands on you and ask God to show up in your life and to reveal to you very intimately who he is to you and who you are in him. Like, I'll be up here. We can go into the, the room right next door. Like, I just want you to respond. Like, not withhold, not be like, oh, it's my thing, I'll deal with it. Or where you've gotten to just so accustomed to it that's like, it's okay. It's just how life is. Maybe, the, maybe it's not how life just is. Maybe it's something, a weakness, a problem that God wants to show off his glory in your life. That maybe he's going to heal you. Maybe he's going to uh, allow you to feel his pleasure and delight in you. But while we're responding, come forward. We love to pray for you.
Father, we ask that you would work in us this morning. That you would woo us even more. Lord, we we are so grateful for what you've done to us. We're so grateful for how you have proven yourself faithful and true and how you've loved us. But Lord, we also ask for more. We want to know more of you. We want to see you and revel in your glory and grace. We want our friendship to continue to deepen and grow with you. All to say, we are needy, you are sufficient, and we ask you to work in us. In Christ's name.